Well, hey, everybody, it's Kevin Stevenson with I Don't Care with, yeah, me, Kevin Stevenson here on Market Scale Radio. Uh, very interesting guest today. We're going to be talking about the world of clinical trials with Harsha Rajasimha, who is the founder and CEO of Jiva. Harsha, welcome to I Don't Care. Thank you for having me today. Hey, really glad to have you on. Tell my uh, viewers and listeners a little bit about yourself and about how you know how you got into the world of clinical trials, and also talk to us a little bit about uh, about Jiva. Absolutely, Kevin. Um, my background is in uh, computational biology for the last 21 years, uh, coming from a software engineering background. I got really interested in the human genome project in the early 2000s, and since then I've been a data scientist uh, analyzing big data in biomedical research, uh, working in academic, uh, NIH, FDA realm uh, in the first 10 years. Uh, and then uh, in the last 10 years, I've been more in the healthcare life science industry, uh, consulting, uh, launching startup uh, products for uh, diagnosing uh, rare diseases, oncology, as well as uh, software platforms uh, that are uh, highly scalable on the cloud uh, for analyzing big data. Um, my involvement in clinical research has been long-standing in that sense, uh, but really I got um, uh, exposed to the other side of the clinical research, which is the patient perspectives. Uh, when I experienced a couple uh, tragedies in my own family of a young child to a rare disease uh, that um, I was a father to, and uh, my younger brother, uh, who was battling diabetes since his uh, teenage years, um, uh, his passing away uh, in his 30s um, in India while I was um, uh, residing here in the United States, uh, that really gave, uh, you know, triggered my entrepreneurial spirit, if you will. So I got inspired by that and um, started addressing um, real bottlenecks in remote clinical trial access, uh, irrespective of their geographic location not just here in the United States, but globally, um, as that's been a major focus, particularly with the pandemic, that whole area has uh, is receiving a lot more attention now, luckily. Okay, very interesting. Well, I'm sorry for your losses, but you know, I found that that, that has been a real, a real jumping off point for many of my guests that they've, you know, they've had some sort of a personal uh, connection with, with, with whatever they've done. And as you said, use their entrepreneurial spirit and, and their uh, uh, and their experience to to really you know try to find a solution. So so that, that's incredible. Yeah. Um, so a recent study shows that about 85% of clinical trials of new drugs and medical devices will experience delays, and some of them, you know, about 90% of them are, are more than a month longer. Uh, so so talk to us a little bit about yeah. You know, what are the most noteworthy causes of the delays of clinical trials? Absolutely, and that's uh, been a big barrier or bottleneck in clinical research for many decades, uh, Kevin. Uh, we uh, spoke with over 2,000 stakeholders of clinical trials in the last uh, three years since our company was founded, and we, we asked the question, what keeps you up at night uh, to these people? You know, uh, sponsors, CROs, clinical trial sites, uh, key opinion leaders, regulators, the number, number one problem is delays in timelines, uh, particularly uh, patient recruitment, which is the upfront uh, you know, uh, critical phase that put, puts, puts a lot of brakes on clinical development. And that uh, there are a lot of reasons why that's the case. Um, 
there is a, a, a significant uh, focus on conducting these clinical trials in brick and mortar physical sites in metro areas, uh, which are usually you know Boston Bay Area, Chicago, Houston, etc. And so you 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 need patients living within 50 mile radius of these metro cities uh, who are willing to travel to the site every single time. That is very restrictive. You know that's automatically looking at one percent of the population that lives in these areas. So you're not able to spread the net on the internet, but rather in the in these uh, sites and locations. That's one big problem. The second is every single time the patient has to travel, and the travel burden makes it real uh, challenging. And uh, you know, patients not just uh, themselves, but a family member, a caregiver has to accompany them. Uh, and they may have to take time off from their work, or they may have to find a daycare for their uh, other child uh, or sibling, and so on. So all these uh, burden add-on in their consideration, even when they are eligible, only three out of 100 eligible patients actually are enrolling in a clinical trial. Uh, if you look at cancer, which is probably the most uh, studied and many clinical trial opportunities there, only 1.2% of all American cancer patients actually are enrolling in clinical trials. So there is significant burden and barriers there. Uh, of course, there are other reasons such as, what if I am a placebo? What if, um, what about the side effects? You know, this is an experimental medication. Maybe it's not safe. Um, those types of concerns do um, uh, result in patients not enrolling, but almost all times, Clinical trial is a better thing than standard of care uh, by definition, right? Otherwise, it would not be approved to be conducted in the first place. So it's really, those are not addressable issues. Uh, some people are just uh, a bit um, uh, risk averse and they don't want to take any chances, uh, but a majority of them are who are open. Um, these are other logistical burdens which are addressable with uh, technology and can uh, really improve the access and hence speed up the clinical trial. Okay. Very, very interesting. Yeah. You know, and I've mentioned on previous podcasts that, uh, that one of my very good friend's daughters uh, was, her life was saved through a clinical trial. And, uh, you know, you talk a lot about uh, just the, the traditional approach that really discourages patient diversity. You know, yeah, she was, she was a, a Caucasian young lady from, from here in Texas with, a, with parents of means. Uh, but what can be done to, to really, yeah, to really reach that, uh, reach a more diverse population uh, through the cl clinical trials. First and foremost, we have to free up this clinical trial paradigm from being restricted to the four walls of these clinical trial sites. Go, uh, you know, we have all the technology, we have the internet for many decades now. Let's use that, right? And uh, the clinical trial uh, ecosystem has been the slowest uh, to adopt that. Uh, and now the pandemic is actually forcing it, uh, forcing it to adopt this uh, internet. And so there are remote technologies like telemedicine. You know, you can screen patients uh, on a phone call or a video call. You can send uh, a diagnostic kit to their uh, home so they can do uh, to a great extent, right? So not everything can be moved to the home yet, but there is significant opportunity to minimize the travel burden when patients don't really have to go to the clinic. And that's that's the biggest uh, opportunity um, that's being tapped into as we speak. I, I, in some sense, it's a revolution, right? So 
from uh, in for more than 70 80 years since the randomized controlled clinical trial paradigm started in the 1940s or 50s not no major uh, change has occurred in how drugs are developed or medical devices are developed um, you know it's uh, been pretty set and stable uh, the biggest change that occurred in the early 2000s was electronic data capture right um, and those systems have are now kind of legacy um, and what is really necessary is a overhaul on the infrastructure with a refresh with modern technology stack and using the uh, smartphones tablets and pcs but also telemedicine video calling sms email all of these engagement uh, between becomes very critical especially when you're looking at engaging patients from their home uh, it, it's not easy to get a response from more than half the people when you send a bunch of emails they may not be reading them maybe some people are more receptive to sms and maybe some people are responsive to the phone calls uh, scheduled or unscheduled so uh, all those uh, communication systems become quite critical and the second part is of course we cannot compromise patient safety uh, first and foremost none of the regulation or none of the good clinical practice change as a result of moving from brick and mortar to online the requirements from regulatory point of view remain the same uh, but it just has to be in, in fact it gets more stringent some of the questions that were not previously asked in the brick and mortar setting are being demanded from a decentralized setting for example did does the patient really understand what this clinical trial is all about right when when a patient goes and has a conversation like this in person uh, with the physician the physician explains the patient uh, says he or she understood and they sign the pa paper they move on but when it the same uh, process is completed remotely um, the uh, you know the ethics committees the institutional review boards and the regulators are asking how do you know if the patient really understood the same question was not a concern when it was in person. So now we are having to say, do a quiz to uh, assess the patient's comprehension about the clinical trial. Yeah, we, okay, you know I've got to ask the question. Uh, how has COVID affected clinical trials other than you know, many, many of the sites being closed down? Oh yeah, um, you know, the significant uh, impact. In fact, I uh, co-authored a perspective paper on the impact of COVID-19 on clinical research, particularly in rare diseases. And the impact has been huge. A uh, lot of uh, positives, some negatives, um, you know, uh, at least in the short, uh, very beginning of the pandemic, things came to a standstill, right? Like uh, clinical trials uh, came down, uh, especially non-critical, non-life essential, if it's not serious Basically, cancer. Basically, it wasn't COVID-related. Yeah, almost. Exactly. But uh, the others, um, ensuring continuity and integrity during the pandemic, right? Uh, by continuity, if every visit was supposed to be in person and they can't visit the clinic anymore for fear of contracting the infection, then there is no continuity. You, you have a gap. And uh, if you have a longer gap in the middle of a trial, now, there is a significant protocol deviation and the data is no longer valid. So many trials were compromised uh, and they have to start all over again. Uh, our integrity uh, in terms of uh, missing a few appointments when there were travel restrictions, 
Now, there is some incomplete data. The data is not reliable. Some data was collected remotely, and we don't know if it's the same as what was done in person. So it's demanding unprecedented flexibility in clinical trial operations where some of these activities could be done in person or some of them could be done remote and either or should be acceptable as long as it's valid clinically validated data uh, so the pandemic essentially has uh, accelerated the whole clinical uh, adoption of decentralization in a very short period of time many uh, experts say you know 10 years worth of progress in 2 years um, or something like that. So 5x to 10x acceleration of technology adoption. That's in a, in some senses the silver lining of the pandemic, right? Okay, interesting. Yeah, and, and, uh, you, you brought up fear, obviously related to COVID, but but a number of people, particularly you know people of color, uh, have a great deal of of trepidation when it comes to any kind of clinical research. You know, you look back at the Tuskegee uh, uh, experiments. And yeah, that that's what we you know that's one of the the reasons we see, we've heard that African Americans have not uh, been readily uh, taking the COVID nineteen vaccine. Uh, how do you combat that in a clinical trial setting? Yeah, absolutely, and that's been a longstanding mistrust between the general public and the clinical research ecosystem in general, right? Uh, even the healthcare systems. Um, it's not just the minorities, even like the Caucasian population, uh, we, we have trouble getting people taking vaccine, for example. You know, they don't trust that the vaccine is safe or effective, even when FDA uh, has gone through that rigorous review and scientists and doctors believe that that's the best thing to do. Um, but minorities have a larger, you know, if 40% is the percentage of Caucasian who may not trust uh, the healthcare system, that's more like 60% in African-American. So it, it's not too too different. It, it's not like 100% of Caucasians trust the system. Oh, either. absolutely. Yeah. So when you look at it in that fashion, and there are good reasons, right, uh, why that's the case uh, due to historical um, mishaps or, um, you know, bad apple examples that, that have occurred, and some of them have occurred systematically um, and others are more accidental, right? Um, but in any case, I think th there are fewer and fewer bad examples in the recent years, um, which, which is a very good thing uh, that there is a significant improvement in equity, diversity, inclusion. We have old examples from the uh, 50s, 60s and 70s and it's generational, right? So now it's a whole new generation now, but still, mistrust has passed on from generations as well. And so it, it's not readily um, easy to get people to trust. Um, and doing that in a decentralized setting is even harder. So that means there has to be significantly increased communication through channels that these people are con consuming information. You know, uh, maybe physicians who look like the people we are targeting right? Um, people with color uh, are more likely to go to physicians of the same color, um, of, as an example. Um, not not always, but many times. And, and that helps build that trust between the healthcare system and the patients uh, in, in general. So, so aside from tackling this underrepresentation and mistrust, what are some of the main benefits of a decentralized clinical trial? 
So one is uh, certainly improving access, right? So whether patients living in rural areas, mountainous areas, uh, even within the United States, but globally, right? Uh, if, if patients can participate in certain observational studies, irrespective of where they are located, uh, entirely can be executed on the internet. That's one opportunity, uh, but even interventional trials where uh, the medicinal product can be shipped to the patient home um, using Amazon Prime or what have you, right? Sure. So yeah. it goes to the doorstep and patients have a 30-day, 90-day supply getting to their doorstep. Now they can report, rest of the data can be reported from their uh, convenience of their home. Of course, not all clinical trials are amenable to that model, uh, but wherever, uh, maybe that opportunity is in certain disease areas more than others, but almost all disease areas, there is opportunity to decentralize maybe at least 20% of the trial operations. Maybe the informed consent can be done remotely. Maybe the screening and uh, validation can be done remotely. Maybe patient reported outcomes can be collected remotely through surveys and questionnaires. Maybe continuous streaming data can be collected from uh, wearable sensors and devices uh, between the visits and minimizing the number of visits uh, to the site where some of them can be done through telemedicine and so on. So benefits include significant speed up in timelines, significant increase in access um, by going from brick and mortar to online. Uh, so now you can reach a much larger pool of potential patients that could uh, access it irrespective of their location, which also means significantly improved diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, although that comes with language barriers and certain uh, cultural barriers um, where it becomes even harder to do on a online mode. If you're posting stuff in English language, you're automatically eliminating non-English speaking um, community. So. Uh, so there are uh, issues, it, it's not like going decentralized is going to make it really uh, solve all the problems, but if done in the right way, uh, you know, you, you could be targeted you know, when you reach out to IP addresses in other countries, uh, mm -hmm. maybe based on wow. geography, you could use the language, different language, right? All right, I, I, I've got what you may think is a silly question. You, we've talked about the, the rare diseases and orphan drugs and things like that. Are those, uh, are clinical trials around rare diseases are they are they appropriate for a decentralized clinical trial or, or does it basically just depend upon what is being trialed yeah that's a very interesting question uh, kevin uh, the biggest thing that's going on uh, in rare disease is gene therapies right uh, these gene therapies are one and done um, what that means is patients have to go to the clinic, get this therapy administered. It's a highly specialized manufacturing um, um, delivery system. But once the therapy is delivered to the patient, uh, maybe the patient may have to stay close to the site for a few days for monitoring. But once that one-time one therapy is done, there is a long-term follow-up. And that becomes very amenable for decentralization. So the patient goes back even to other countries, wherever they came from, and now they can be monitored through remote technologies. So uh, depending on the nature of rare diseases, um, uh, the therapy modality, if it's a small molecule pill, those are uh, certainly, uh, as long as those could be shipped to the patient's homes, uh, could still be 
amenable um, biologics and injectables but gene therapies um, you know just last year alone 80 billion dollars have gone into investing in gene therapies in the united states alone uh, and these have the potential to be curative um, you know uh, with a expected durability of uh, about 20 years uh, at least with a one-time treatment. And there are other new modalities like antisense, oligonucleotide therapy, ASO, and so on. The bigger challenge is the smaller population scale. Uh, and so what that means is you, you can't have the same sledgehammer solution that worked for a COVID-19 vaccine, which had 44,000 patients participating in a vaccine trial. It's a population scale versus a one patient trial or 10 patient or 20 patient trial in a, as is the case is with most rare and ultra rare disease clinical trials. Yeah, so that's where a highly uh, flexible and scalable platform, which could address small population as well as large population studies can come really handy. So you, you don't go with a uh, massive uh, sledgehammer for this nail. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's what I was thinking too, because obviously, you know, just the, the as you said, you know, typically those those rare disease trials, you're talking, you know, one less than 10 because there's not. That, I mean, that's why it's a rare disease. That's, there's not that many people that, that are affected by it. So, well, I appreciate you indulging my silly question. Um, so so why are human centric clinical platforms of primary importance in, in achieving study effectiveness? So uh, as. Technology is both a boon and a bane, uh, Kevin, as we have seen during the pandemic, you know, you, putting a technology between uh, uh, two humans can become a good thing or a barrier for communication and what have you. So these technologies have to be human centric uh, in the sense uh, patients could come from various strata of life, various cultures, various languages, age groups, etc. And so having that cultural humility is very important. And by putting a technology in between, we, we might actually be doing more harm than good um, in some instances. So uh, that, that's why we uh, pride ourselves in calling uh, our platform a human-centric platform. Uh, that's because we, we need to, uh, we are not there yet. Uh, it's a journey and, and we are not there yet, but we have identified various barriers that technology can pose in engaging more diverse and inclusive human populations in clinical research. Okay. Well, Harsha, I've got, I've got to admit, this has been incredibly fascinating. You know, we, we talked you know, on the perimeter of, uh, of clinical trials on the show, but uh, I really appreciate your, your helping us to uh, laser focus uh, our information on that. We'd love to have you come back in the future and give us an update on some of the things that your company is doing, because it just sounds fascinating. Yeah, it, this was a fantastic conversation, Kevin, and you had some uh, amazing questions. They were not at all naive, uh, even the rare disease ones, uh, very insightful. So I'd appreciate coming back here uh, again uh, at some point, and thank you for having me today. Absolutely. Well, folks, that was Harsha Rajasimha, founder and CEO of Jiva. Uh, again, you know how to find us. Uh, we typically drop live on Fridays. Uh, if not, if you don't hear us live on Market Scale Radio, uh, go to Spotify and iTunes and I'll end the show like I always do. If you haven't subscribed to I Don't Care with Kevin Stevenson, why not? 
So with that, we'll talk to you next week. Take care.